This is KMTT and the weekly Pashat HaShavua Shirat. This year, Tavshin Ayin, it will be given by Harav Chanoch Waxman. This week, Pashat Todot, I would like to discuss perhaps the central event of Pashat Todot. Of course, the theft of the brachot originally intended for Esav by Yaakov. Um, and what I would primarily like to discuss is two different approaches uh, to this scene, to this set of events. Uh, two approaches which I think can each be connect, each one of which can be connected up to a central theme in Sefer Breshit. But before getting to formulation of a question and to unfolding the two approaches that I'd like to discuss, I'd like to begin with, with something in the text. Uh, a kind of careful reading of the attitude of Yaakov as he enters in uh, to Yitzchak um, for his bracha. Um, and this begins uh, further back uh, in Perak Kaf Zayin, uh, where we see Rivka suggests to Yaakov uh, to enter in in place of Esav and to be certain to get the brachot originally intended for Esav. Of course, Yaakov is slightly hesitant. Um, in Perak Kaf Zayin, Pasuket Aleph, the Torah tells us as follows: Yaakov el Rivka, Imo, and Yaakov said to Rivka's mother, "Hein Esav, achi ish sa'ir. Behold, my brother Esav is a hairy man. Venochi ish chalak. I am a smooth man. Ulai musheni avi. Uh, perhaps my father will touch me. Veiti beinav kimetatea, and I will appear in his li- in his eyes as a liar. Veveta like klala. He will bring upon me a curse. So Yaakov is hesitant. He's concerned. He's cautious." But his mother is unwielding. And in Pasuk Yod Gimel, Rivka says, Vatomer lo imo, uh, and his mother said to him, Alai kilat chabani, my curse will be upon you. Achshma b'koli, listen to my voice. Lech, go, kachli, take for me. And Yaakov follows her orders. And throughout the Pesukim here, clearly the Torah portrays Rivka as the initiator of events and Yaakov as initially hesitant. We're told, for example, in Perak Zayin, Pasuk Tetvav, and Rivka was the one who took the clothing of Esav, her elder son. Um, and she dressed Yaakov, her younger son. Although Yaakov is not exactly a young child, still his, his mother takes the clothes for him. She dresses him. And eventually she drapes uh, the Orot Gidi Izim on the arms of Yaakov and upon his, on his hands and upon his neck. She gives them um, to Yaakov to take in uh, to Yitzchak. And with this, Yaakov enters into uh, Yitzchak's area, into his room, to his father. We may say, indeed, with great hesitancy. And now we get to a kind of crucial moment in the characterization of Yaakov in the story. Perak Zayin. Pasuk Yudchet tells us as follows: Vayavo el Aviv, and he came to his father Vayomer, and he said, "Avi, father." At the key moment of entrance into his father, Yaakov can not get out but one word: "Avi, father." And, and Yaakov says no more. We can imagine him quavering, hesitant, tremulous about what is about to happen. And then Yitzchak responds: "Vayomerhineni miatabini." And Yitzchak, slightly suspicious, slightly skeptical, says, Here I am, Miatabani. Who are you? Pasukitet. Vayomer Yaakov el Aviv. And Yaakov said to his father, Anochi Esav b'chorecha. 
And now Yaakov crosses the Rubicon and he says, Anochi Esav B'Kerecha, I am Esav, your firstborn. Asiti kasher dibarta ilai. I did exactly as you told me. Kumna shvav achla mitzedi. Sit up and eat from my hunt. Ba'avor tevachani nafshecha, so that your soul will bless me. And Yitzchak is ever hesitant, ever suspicious, ever concerned that perhaps this is not really Esav. And he asks in Pasuk Kaf, Mazami hartalim tzobini. Uh, how have you arrived back so quickly? But of course, once Yaakov has crossed the line, he has a ready answer in Pasach. Oh, God caused it to happen quickly. And then when Yitzchak proposes the ultimate test that Yaakov should come close and he should be touched, he should be felt by uh, Yitzchak to make sure that it is indeed Esav, without hesitation, Yaakov uh, comes close. And finally, at the end of this little segment in Pasach Kaftalad, when one last time skeptical, concerned, and suspicious, Yitzchak asks, Vayomer atazeb b'ni Esav, are you indeed, in fact, my son Esav? And Yaakov says, Vayomer ani, I am. So what we might say here is that, well, perhaps at first Yaakov is hesitant about the events, perhaps he is hesitant about the deception, perhaps hesitant about the switch, and when he first enters in, all he can say is avi. As things move along, he picks up speed. He moves down the slope. And once the deception begins, Yaakov has every ready answer. He is Esav the Bechor, and he is here for his bracha, and he has an explanation of how he arrived so fast, and how he is ready to be touched, and he is ready to declare over and over that he is Esav. The question, of course, and the kind of the central issue in this key scene of Parshat Toldot, is what do we make of this deception perpetrated by Rivka and Yaakov? And what do we make of the fact that the brachot, uh, the blessings uh, that define the destiny of Yaakov, that define the covenant, are garnered uh, through the means of trickery, through the means of deception, um, through the utterances and the acting of Yaakov that we just mapped out? Well, as I hinted earlier, um, I stated that I wanted to, or as I stated earlier, I, I said that I wanted to talk about two approaches uh, to this parsha. One which I consider more or less the traditional approach, and one which I consider as a bit of an alternative. Let us begin with the traditional approach that I think can be found to some extent in Rashi, um, but uh, perhaps uh, most iterated uh, and most emphasized by Ibn Ezra. Rashi, commenting on the words on Anochi Esav Bicharecha in Parakavzayin, Pasuk Yud Tet, uh, Yaakov's first claim to be Esav in front of Yitzchak, Rashi says as follows, Anochi Esav Bicharecha, I am Esav your Bichor, Anochi Hamevilecha, it is I who bring you the food, the Esav who Bicharecha, but Esav is your Bichor. Um, in other words, uh, Rashi here, quoting a Midrash found in Divrei Chazal, says that, oh, when Yaakov said, Anochi Esav Bechorecha, he didn't mean to declare himself as Esav the Bechor, but rather, what did Yaakov mean to do? Anochi, I am the one who brings you the food, but Esav is your Bechor. So, technically, perhaps, on some level, Yaakov never told a bold-faced or a bold-faced or explicit lie. He just somehow allowed Yitzchak to believe that he was Esav, but what, of course, he really meant was, I'm the one who brings you, and Esav is your Bechor. Or another example of this, in Yaakov's final statement to Yitzchak, when Yitzchak asks, are you indeed Esav? And Yaakov answers, Ani, which I think should be read as meaning, yes, of course, I am. Rashi says, Ve'omer Ani, 
Rashi comments in Parakasayim Pasuk Kaftalad, Lo Amar Ani Esav, he did not say, I am Esav, El Ani, but I am. Uh, meaning, as if Yaakov states, I am who I am. But of course, Chas V'chalila, the Yaakov ever explicitly lied and said that he was Esav. And I think the idea or the attempt here, uh, found in Divrei Rashi, and again, working off many themes in the Midrashim in Chazal, is to attempt to kind of save Yaakov uh, from the explicit chet. Obviously, Yaakov had to do what he needed to do. He really, of course, had no choice. His action was, was out of necessity. Um, but uh, there is some attempt by Chazal to somehow save him from the explicit lie and to say that Enochi Esav B'charecha or Ani, um, while perhaps deceptive, are not in fact acts of, of Sheker. Um, a similar approach, um, and perhaps the extreme version of this approach, can be found in Ibn Ezra. Commenting on the theme in Chazal, uh, which I just noted uh, through the words of Rashi, that the lies here are not explicit, they're somehow lighter. There's a kind of reading down of the deception here. Um, Ibn Ezra comments as follows. These are words of, of ruach, of spirit, of nonsense, effectively. Because the prophets... Nivie ha'atid, um, the prophets of the future. Im lomar davar If they have the need to say something which is not appropriate, which is deceptive, lo yazik, it does not damage. Or effectively, if there's a necessity to say something untrue, to achieve a means, to achieve a goal out of necessity, then this does not do damage, and this is permissible to a great prophet. And Ibn Ezra goes on to cite numerous examples, two of them being previous stories we have in Sefer Breshit, stories of Avraham Avinu. At the end of his comment, Ibn Ezra says, V'chein amar Avraham gam amana, and this is a reference to Avraham's statement in front of Avimelech, gam amna achotihi, that in fact, indeed, she is my sister. Or previously, uh, or par- pardon me, a bit later on in Sefer Breshit, Vinishtachavan Vinashuva, Ibn Ezra says. A reference, of course, to Breshit Per Kavbet Pasuke, where Abraham says to his Na'arim uh, at the Akedah, on the way to Haramoria, Vinishtachavim Vinashuva, we will bow down and return to you. So, out of necessity, uh, out of neatness, uh, out of need, it is permissible for a great prophet to tell an untruth, uh, to deceive, and to lie if the situation necessitates the ends, justifies the means. This is the primary idea. Now, I think, in point of fact, that Chazal, even in reading down the deception, and certainly Ibn Ezra, are adopting fundamentally the same approach. Rifka and Yaakov know, but especially Rifka knows, that there is a necessity to prevent Yitzchak from giving the brachot, giving the covenantal to uh, brachot to Esav. Um, as Rifka her says, uh, herself says um, in um, Pasuk, Parakavzayin, Pasuk Vav, Hine Shamati et Avicha Medaber Esav Achicha Lemar. Rivka says to Yaakov, I heard your brother Esav, your father speak to Esav, your brother as follows. Havili Tzayid Vaseli Matamim Vaochil Vavacha Nafshi Vavacha Lefne Hashem Lefne Moti. I heard him say, Bring me food and I will eat it and then my, I will bless you. Uh, in front of God, before I die. So this is the key moment. Yitzchak is dying, and he's about to pass on the brachot to Yitzchak, and, uh, to Esav. And of course, Esav is undeserving. Esav is inappropriate. And moreover, Rivka knows the 
Divrei Hashem. Rivka knows the prophecy. Previously, of course, in Parak Kafhe, um, Pasuk Kafbet, we are told, and the children struggled within her. And as a result, Rivka went to Lidrosh Hashem to ask of God what this means. And she received a prophecy, a besora, uh, a piece of information, a kind of oracle. And the way that ends, the text of that ends, in Parak Kaf Hey, Pasuk Kaf Da Kaf Gimel, Varav Ya'avod Tseir. The elder will serve the younger. So Rivka knows the prophecy. She knows that the elder must be subservient to the younger. That is the younger who must be the covenantal son. She diagnoses the situation that Yitzchak, for some reason, is about to give the brachot to the elder and undeserving son. And Rivka springs into action. Does it require a bit of deception? Yes, it does. But it's necessary, and the ends justifies the means. In this traditional reading of the story, Rivka is the heroine. Rivka is the hero of the story, the one who saves the day and prevents the brachot from going to someone undeserving, from going to Asaph. Now, I would like to point out, as mentioned earlier, that in this, again, traditional reading of the story, I think there's an interesting connection to a very crucial and prominent theme in Sefer Breshit. Um, as we well know, Sefer Breshit often tells us the story of pairs of brothers. Um, and, and often, in these pairs of brothers, uh, for some reason or another, it is the younger brother who is chosen. Uh, it is not the Bukhar, but the Nivchar. It is not the firstborn who, so to speak, inherits or is special or is selected, but it is rather the younger one who is chosen as opposed to the older. And offhand, we might note that this happens at least five times in Sefer Preshit. And the first example I can think of is Cain Vehevel, where it is Hevel who is chosen uh, as opposed to Cain. His korban is accepted in place of Cain. Secondly, Yitzchak and Yishmael, where uh, Yishmael, the older brother, is pushed aside in favor of Yitzchak. Third, Yaakov and Esav, of course. Fourth, Yosef and all of his other brothers, where Yosef, the younger brother, is chosen in place of the other older brothers. And finally, fifth, the interesting case of Ephraim and Menasheh, where once again, the younger is selected, in some sense, in place of the older. Now, this idea of the younger replacing the older is normally considered um, as a symbol of divine providence, of the idea of hashkacha, of divine intervention. After all, as we know from later on in Sefer Dvarim, there's an idea called Mishpat HaBuchora, the law of the firstborn. It is the firstborn who is supposed to inherit, who is supposed to carry on the father's heritage, who is supposed to receive special consideration. Or if we, for a second, move outside of the context of Sefer Dvarim, it was well known. In the ancient Near East, there was something which might be thought of as kind of almost an iron natural law of primogeniture. The, the firstborn would always inherit. But this is not the way Sefer Breshit works. Here, the older is replaced with the younger. There's a kind of another agenda, an agenda of desert, of a hidden hand, of providence. And the idea is here that constantly the normal things, uh, way things that should work in the world is undercut, undermined, and revised by the hidden hand of divine providence. And this theme of the younger replacing the older is normally considered symbolic as a sign of hashkacha, of divine providence. Now, it is very interesting to note that as we move through the Sefer, um, there's a clear change um, in who is it who chooses the younger over the older. In the first two cases, Cain and Hevel, 
and Yitzchak and Yishmael, respectively. It is clearly God who decides that it, who is the younger that will be chosen in place of the older. It is through God's agency and God's decision. It is God who turns to the korban of Hevel as opposed to Kain. And it is God who tells Aram Kib Yitzchak that it is Yitzchak, the younger son, who will be chosen. Interestingly enough, if we jump to the latter uh, two cases, it is clearly a matter of, of human agency. Uh, a person choosing the one who is special, of choosing the one who is nivchar, who is chosen, as opposed to the bukhar. In the case of Yosef and his brothers, it is Yaakov who favors uh, Yosef. Um, and of course, in the case of Ephraim and Menashe, it is again Yaakov who chooses the younger over the older. We have here a concept or an idea that it is human agency that plays a role in the working out or the entrance of divine providence into the world. Um, there's a sense that divine providence needs human effort and human exertion to bring it into the world, to make it into the world, to kind of steer it in, on its path through the world. And the question, of course, becomes is where did this transition happen? Where does this transition happen? And from where did Yaakov learn that divine providence needs to be steered or brought into the world or made to happen in the world? And the answer is in our parsha, in parsha Todot, in Parak Kavzayin. Yaakov learnt it from his mother, from Rivka. Rivka is the heroine who plays a key role in this transitional story in which we are taught that it is through human initiative and human agency and human action that divine providence comes into the world, that the brachot are moved from the older to the younger, that Yaakov becomes the truly son. So I think this traditional reading of the ends justifies the means ties into this um, larger theme in Sefer Bereshit of divine providence and the key idea that human that divine providence comes true in the world through human agency, a lesson taught by Rivka, and this is one approach to the story. However, I think there is an alternative and very interesting approach which is possible to under, understanding our story. And to map this out, it's important to go back to some of the dialogue between Rivka and Yaakov in the story and to also take a look at some of the results of the actions of Rivka and Yaakov in our story. So I'd like to pick it up in Parak Kafzayin, Pasukat, some key terminology uh, in the story, which begins back in the conversation, in one of the first conversations between Rivka and Yaakov. Parak Kafzayin, Pasukat, tells us as follows. Vatabini Immediately after realizing what was about to happen, Rivka says to Yaakov, listen to my voice, what that which I command you, go to the sheep, etc. Again, after Yaakov's hesitation um, about entering into Yitzchak and perpetrating the deception, again in Perakav Zion, Pasuk Yud Gimel, the Torah says, and his mother said to him, Alai kilatcha bini, uh, my curse is upon you, my son. Listen to my voice. Uh, finally, yet a third time, after the whole story has occurred, after the deception has happened, after the brachot have been given to Yaakov, after Esav has entered and become upset, after Esav has plotted uh, to kill his brother, and Rivka has become aware of this, the Torah in Perak Kavzayin, Pasuk Mem Gimel, tells us as follows. Rivka speaks yet one more time, to Yaakov, and the Torah says as follows, Vata bini shma bikoli, the third usage of shma bikoli, listen to my voice in the story, 
Mikum brach lecha elavan achi. I want you to flee, run to love my brother Charana in Haran. And you will stay uh, a few days with him. Until your brother comes down. Until your brother's anger has subsided. He'll forget what you did to him. Um, so, and then I will send and I will bring you back from there. So Rivka, ever the one with the plan. Shma Bekoli. This is what I need you to do. Take the tone and go into Esav. Shma Bekoli. Don't hesitate. Go do it. And finally, after the event, after Esav is angry and Yaakov's life is in danger, Shma Bekoli, you had a third time. Rivka has a plan. Yaakov will run to Haran, to her brother Lavan, and this will just take Yamim Achadim a short time. Well, I think it is very interesting to look at um, what happens later on, because this phrase, uh, Yamim Achadim, Rivka's plan, or Rivka's last plan, resurfaces yet uh, another time. If we jump for the moment to Perak Kaftet Pasuk Yud which describes in the Torah what happens when Rivka's latter plan comes to fruition. Um, when Yaakov arrives in Haran, um, and when he does meet Lavan, the brother of his mother. And uh, the Torah tells us in Perak Kaftet Pasuk Yud Gimel, uh, as follows, Ve'aviu el Beito, um, after the hugging and kissing, um, Lavan brings Yaakov to his house. And he tells Lavan everything. He tells him everything. Because why shouldn't he tell him everything? After all, this is uh, his uncle, the brother of his mother, the place he has been sent for refuge from his biological brother, Esav. And Pasuk Yudalit says as follows in Perak Kaftet. Perak Kaftet, Pasuk Yudalit. Lavan, ach atzmi ubsari ata yur. Flesh and bone. You are my flesh and bone. He stayed with him a month. And then, furthermore, the Sukim continue on. And Levan said to Yaakov, You're my brother. Meaning, he isn't just this uncle, and they're not just flesh and blood, but Levan views Yaakov as, as an actual brother, an Ach. And maybe here it just means clansmen, but they have a very close relationship. But then let us look at the next clause in the Chumash here, in Parakhaftet, Pasuk Tetvav. Va'avadatani chinam, will you work for me for free? And the term avadatani here, of course, is connected to the idea of eved, servant, slave, labor. And apparently, when Yaakov has been living with his brother, Lavan, for the last month, he has been ovedotu, he has worked for him. And uh, Lavan says, Tell me what are going to be your wages. Now, of course, we know how this turns out, that Lavan has two daughters, and Yaakov agrees to work for Rachel for seven years, and eventually Lavan uh, agrees to this. And then we have a key per- verse in Parakhaftat Pasukhav, Avod Yaakov, and Yaakov Aven Oved, he worked for Lavan, Rachel, for Rachel, Sheva, Shanim, for seven years. Vayu Be'enav Kiyamim Achadim. So these were like yamim achadim. This was a few days. This, I believe, a certain. It's the same phrase, exactly what Rivka had predicted. You're going to go for yamim achadim a few days, and then I'll bring you back. And Yaakov went for yamim achadim. But wait a second. The yamim achadim turned out to be seven years of hard labor for Lavan. So there's a certain sense that the Torah ironically undercuts. Rivka's plan by saying the Yamim Achadim didn't exactly turn out as Rivka had expected. It turned out to be far longer. Now, in the end of the day, we know that this turns out to be even far longer than seven years. And here we need to jump 
to the final encounter between Lavan and Yaakov, which is found in Perak Lamed Aleph, to follow up some of the details here. As you well know, eventually God appears to Yaakov and tells him to leave, and Yaakov leaves, and Lavan chases after him, and Lavan catches him, and he turns over his whole camp, and then eventually... Um, Yaakov becomes upset with Lavan. And in Perak Lamed Aleph, Pasuk Lamed Vav of the Torah, we're told as follows, V'yichal Yaakov, V'yarov Lavan. And Yaakov became angry and he strove with Lavan and he rebuked him and said, why did you overturn my camp? And then in Pasuk Lamed Chet, Perak Lamed Aleph, Pasuk Lamed Chet, um, we have a very key verse. Yaakov says as follows, Ze esrim shana anochi imach. So the Yamim Achadim turned out to be 20 years. And in point of fact, it's not just that the Yamim Achadim turned out to be 20 years, a very, very lengthy time, and Rivka's plan did not really come true at all. But if we pay attention, Rivka and Yaakov never see each other again. So quite clearly, the length of Yaakov's stay in Haran turned out to be totally different than expected. Um, the language of Yamim Achadim undercuts Rivka's expectation, and they actually indeed never see each other again, and there's a kind of rupture that occurs between them, a permanent rupture, as a result of the action uh, of theft, of taking of the brachot, etc. Now, there's more to it than this. It's not just that the length of stay turns out to be a little bit different. I think there's another interesting dynamic going on. Yaakov continues on in that same statement in Perak Lamed Aleph, that same rebuke of Lavan, and he says to Lavan, in Pasuk Lamed Tet, Lamed Aleph Lamed Tet, I never brought a ripped animal to you. I took the burden of it. You could take it from me. You stole from me, Lavan, during the day and during the night. Or my days were stolen from me, my nights were stolen from me. I worked in the day and the dryness... Uh, ate me alive. The ice at night. I didn't sleep. Twenty years in your house. I slaved for you. Fourteen years for the for the wives, and six years for the tone. And found the end of pasuk You switched my schar ten times at least. So these years that Yaakov worked for Lavan, they were years of hard, back-breaking labor where he was tricked and he was effectively deprived of salary and he was enslaved by Lavan for over 20 years. And the language that the Chumash uses over and over to describe the quality of this time with Lavan is avodah, avadatani. And, but then again, let's think about it. Lavan is... Yaakov's Ach. Now it means clansman, but it also means brother. It begins with, you are my brother, but he winds up being his Eved. So Yaakov winds up being an Eved for his Ach during these 20 years. And of course, Lavan, as the Ach of Yaakov, is his older brother. So we have here a situation, a scenario, where the younger brother works for the older brother, and this is another result of what happened back in Parashat Tolda in Parashat Zion. And if we think about it, it's exactly the reverse of the prophecy, the motivation of Rivka and Yaakov, along the Rav Ya'avod Sa'ir. The older will work for the younger. The older will slave or be a servant of the younger. But in fact, exactly the, hap- exactly the opposite happens. That Sa'ir, Yaakov, becomes the Ove, the servant, the slave of the older Ach of Lavan. So we have a sense where in the quality, things bounce back, things turn back around, are reversed upon Rivka and Yaakov. Now, all of this really comes together in perhaps the central event of 
Parshat Vayetze, the central event of uh, Yaakov's time uh, with Lavan. And I, of course, am thinking of the wedding, uh, that crucial wedding night, what was meant to be the wedding with Rachel. Perak Kaftet, Pasuk Kafibet, uh, found in Parshat Vayetze, tells us as follows. Vayasof Lavan et kol And Lavan gathered together all the people of the place. Vayas Mishdei made a great party. Vayiba Erev. And it was at night, it was in the evening. So I emphasized it in the evening. And he took Leah, his daughter, and he brought her into him, and he came on to her. Is the word of the Torah used here. So it was in the dark, and Lavan gives Leah in place of Rachel. Um, and immediately afterwards, in Pasuk Cafe, and it turned out in the morning it was Leah, and Yaakov spoke to Lavan, and of course, uh, Yaakov was upset. But wait, let's just think about this for a moment. What happened in the dark, at night, the same as Yitzchak was in the dark because he was blind, the way the parsha begins in Perak of Zion, and his eyes were darkened. So in the dark, there's a switch of sibling for sibling. There's an older, younger switch. The same as Yaakov in the dark of uh, his father's father Yitzchak's blindness had pulled a older, younger switch on his father, so too, now in the dark, in the era of Yaakov, has an older, younger switch pulled upon him. And there are two very interesting parallels here between the wedding scene and the scene of the brachot back in Perak Kaf Zion. Uh, things are reversed upon Yaakov. Well, let's take this to the next level. Uh, what does Yaakov say in the morning to Lavan? Mazot asitali. Hello, brachel avadati. I worked for Rachel in Perak Kaftet Pasakafe. Vilama Rimitani, why did you trick me? The language here is trick. Yaakov asks, so to speak, Vitzmimut, with innocence, to Lavan, why did you trick me? But if we think about it, this is exactly the same exact term that Yitzchak uses to Isab to describe what Yaakov, his brother, had done to him. In Perak Kafzain Pasiklamid, when Esav walks into Yitzchak and says, What has happened? What does Yitzchak say in Parakatet Mirma, With trickery, with deceit, the word is Mirma, the same as Lama Rimitani later on, and Tokyo Brachot. So what we have here is again reversal, Mida, Keneg, and Mida, measure for measure. It's dark, it's night, there's an older, younger switch, and it's all done by Mirma. What happens to Yaakov is exactly what he had perpetrated upon his father. And finally, almost a caustic comment by Lavan, finish things, things off here. Lavan has a response to Yaakov's claim of why have you tricked me? In Perak Kaftet Pasuk Kavav, Lavan says, Vayomer Lavan, Lo ira It is not done in our place to um, place the younger before the older. I.e., maybe Yaakov, you come from a different kind of place. Maybe in your place, you put the younger before the older. Maybe you pull those kinds of switches. But not here. In our place, a proper place, a place of rules and norms, we do not place the younger before the older. And I think this goes back to Vayisaper Lo, it's called Varmeila. 
Yaakov has made a clean breast of everything with his uncle, with his brother, Lavan. He has trusted him and everything bounces back upon Yaakov and he is given more reproof by Lavan and he is told, well, here we don't switch younger for older like maybe in some other places or maybe like you did. So if we add all these elements together, the idea of the length of the stay, that the Yamim Achadim turns out to be much longer than expected, the Yaakov and Rivka never see each other, the quality of the time, that it's effectively slavery for Lavan, slavery for an older brother, and a reversal of the oracle of the prophecy of Rabbi Avod Seir. And we add together what happens at the, in the key scene, the night of the wedding, uh, where we have the older, younger switch in the dark, um, the language of Remitani and Mirma, and finally the ethical reproof from Lavan, I think it is clear that on some level uh, what comes around goes around. There is Midah Kineg and Midah, that Yaakov here is being held accountable. Yaakov here is being punished for his actions of deceit, um, for his actions of, uh, for his problematic actions in, in lying to his father and stealing the brachot from Esav. Um, now, of course, um, when we think about it, what is the reading uh, that emerges uh, from all of this? I think uh, the reading is, is that, uh, as Ramban says uh, in a few places uh, in his commentary on Parashat, specifically in Parakit Bet, uh, in a place where we find justice, where we find judgment, there must be error or there must be sin. And if Yaakov and Rivka are punished for their actions, this means that entering into the space of Yitzchak and saying what he said was a sin, was a chait, the deception was wrong, and Yaakov and Rivka are punished. And we have here a story of sin and punishment eventually on some plane. Well, what does this mean? Wasn't it necessary? Didn't it have to be done? Uh, didn't the prophecy say that Yaakov was the chosen son? Um, don't the ends justify the means? Uh, doesn't divine providence have to be steered into the world? The answer to all those questions is no. That perhaps God had many, many ways to make the prophecy come true. God had many ways for divine providence to come true in the world. Perhaps Yitzchak never ever intended to give the covenantal brachot uh, to Esav. Either way, the story is primarily about usurping the prerogative of divine providence, of being active when one should let divine providence unfold. And as such, as a kind of improper interference in the divine prerogative, the meaning of the story is that the ends do not justify the means. Um, and the meaning of the story is that it's really on some level about uh, sin uh, and punishment in the end of the day. And this is certainly an alternative and very, very different uh, reading than the traditional reading. I'd just like to close that this idea of reading the story as uh, usurping of divine providence, as a kind of story of sin and punishment, fits into a larger theme uh, in Sefer Breshit. And here again, one last time, I would like to draw on uh, Ramban. Uh, Ramban, in another comment in, say, in the earlier part of Breshit, tells us that sin in Sefer Breshit is often followed by exile. And he mentions the case of Adam and Gan Eden. Uh, man sins, he's exiled from Gan Eden. And likewise, Cain sins, and he's exiled from upon the face of the Adama and the uh, Doha Flaga, uh, the people of the story of Migdal Bavel, they sin and they're exiled from their place. And if we have this general theme of sin and exile in Sefer Breshit, we can say 
This is to some extent what happens to Yaakov as well. His act of thieving, of deception, is in fact a chet, and he goes into exile, leaves home, and goes to a long, hard, and difficult exile in Haran, and it's part of the general theme in Sefer Breshit, perhaps of sin and exile. Just to wrap up, we have here two very interesting, very plausible, and very conflicting readings. On the one hand, the first interpretation, Rivka as heroine, the ends justifies the means, teaching us that divine providence needs to be made, made, made to happen in the world, needs to be steered or brought into the world. On the other hand, the alternative approach, Yaakov and Rivka as being in error, uh, as making a mistake, uh, as acting improperly, the ends do not justify the means, and their action is a kind of usurpation of the rights of divine providence, and this is a case where rather they should have let providence unfold, that things were well, uh, well trusted and uh, well cared for in God's hands. How do we determine between these two readings? Uh, which one is correct and which one is incorrect? Well, I prefer to say uh, that it's hard to know, uh, that in fact I would like to hold both in hand, that the first perhaps teaches us about the importance of, of being active, um, while the second teaches us about the importance of sometimes not being active. Um, the first teaches us about needing to do what we need to do, and sometimes uh, that can be difficult. Well, the second teaches us about sometimes the ends certainly do not justify the means. What to make of this? Well, it's really just a kind of tension, perhaps the tension of being people with free will, living in a world guided by divine providence.